mic is hot and the game is on. You're listening to News for the Nation podcast by Aces Nation, where we talk about nutrition, sports performance, the journey of a student athlete, and more. I'm Claire. I'm Zach. Time Time to to level level up. Welcome back, sports fans. Today, we are talking about power sports, sports like football, basketball, volleyball, baseball, softball, golf, tennis, etc. You know, anything else that falls within the lines of having these moments, these elements of uh, a lot of force production, a lot of power needed for the skill, for the uh, execution of tasks and uh, rest periods that are associated with that. So that's why what we're considering as a power sport, because you've got these moments of exertion, but you also have these recovery periods that are associated in play as well. Um, Claire, you play power sports? No, (laughs) I no. actually, now that I think about it, I've only ever participated in endurance sports up until I started like I started CrossFit. Then maybe you could say some of the lifts we did were more power focused, but even then not solely power. No. Right. Uh, What's funny is that all of my um, really my like childhood or like adolescent time and high school time was only power sports. Mm-hmm. E- even the time when I was in track uh, for one year, it was, I wasn't running any farther than 200 and I was doing some throwing events too. So I've only really done power, but uh, anyways, let's, you know, kind of jump into it. Um, I- I'm just going to kind of talk about some of the strength conditioning stuff first. So, and then we'll get into how that ties in to actually fueling your body um, for it and to recover from it. Um, so energy system needs, right? In the sports that I mentioned, there's a little bit of difference. There's some variance, right? So some people may be like basketball could be considered an intermittent power sport. It could, right? Uh, but when you get into these different levels of basketball, um, Let's, let's say from like my college experience of working with basketball, you have fouls, you have dead balls, right? So there's times where you're getting rest, but also you're adding in TV timeouts, right? Or media timeouts, right? So these things start to really separate the action in the game and they give you more rest. So that's why I really feel like basketball ties into this, but for the energy system, uh, it's anaerobic, but within that, we've got two different things. We've got anaerobic glycolysis and we've got the uh, creatine uh, phosphate, ATP uh, creatine phosphate systems that are working. So working from zero to up to 15 seconds and then 15 to 30 seconds, right? So working from within those ranges. Uh, a couple different other things here. There's a vector, different vector emphasis here, right? Uh, in basketball and volleyball, uh, let's volleyball in particular, right? There's more of a vertical emphasis than there is anything else, right? Um, looking at football, there's more of a horizontal emphasis, right? Baseball, softball, golf, any of these swinging sports that we have, it's more of a transverse dominant uh, vector in the sport, right? Where things are happening from a rotational perspective. So there are different elements that happen, right? Um, that being said, anytime you swing, right? Like in volleyball, there is a transverse, you know, um, element to that as well. But to score points, there usually needs to be uh, a high element of that vertical force. Um, task and position specific needs that may happen in the sport linear 
track and field yeah, or track in general. It's a linear sport, right? Um, reactive. Basketball's reactive. Football's reactive. Anytime you're going one-on-one with a, an opponent, it's going to be a reactive element. Um, defensive specialist or the back line in volleyball, that's going to be a reactive component because the ball's coming over the net and you have to be able to react to that. I would even say that um, outsides and middles who are receiving a set from their teammate, that's a reactive element because the ball doesn't always go where you want it to go. And you have to react to that as well. Right. Um, sometimes covering longer distances in these sports, football, you could have a breakaway play that goes a, a long distance, right? Um, baseball, softball, outfielders, you could be covering quite a bit of distance to go track a ball down or, or make a play at the fence. Um, or you could be covering short distances like infielders, like, uh, like volleyball, um, in golf, you really don't cover much distance. It's just stationary happening, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. It, don't forget tennis here. You could be covering a long accumulated distance within yeah. a point, right? But these distance only happen like short one, short uh, at a time. Um, impact intensity. Talking about not just impact from the ground like you would expect from volleyball, right? From landing from a jump, basketball landing from a jump. Um, but football impact intensity of getting hit, right? Are you D line O line where it's, it's happening at a short distance or are you, you know, blitzing linebacker that's, that's coming into a, a blocking running back. And that's some, you know, some good momentum and mass coming together to meet, right? That leads into contact versus non-contact. Obviously we've got our basketball, our football, um, that's contact. And then we've got our, our other sports, swinging sports track. That's uh, non-contact. So those are some differences within that we're going to look at here. So I'm going to talk about some of the emphasis here that I would say for all of these sports, um, max relative strength is, uh, it, it's a big deal. You need to be able to produce a lot of force in, in this, in all of these sports. Um, power sports so obviously power you know um things yeah things i kind of wrote down here to to think about within power is eccentric greater force development relative concentric force and concentric impulse those are specific things within uh force development that you should really focus on and can help you identify some weak needs or identify who you are as a player um, you need to have an established aerobic base for repeatability in these bouts of power, right? You need to be able to recover from them quickly, uh, because if you can't recover quickly and your opponent can, obviously you're going to be a little bit behind or you're going to give up some, uh, precious points that, uh, you don't want to, you need to have adequate range of motion. I'm talking ankle because all of these sports go through the ground. Um, and hip mobility, uh, especially if you're in a running sport or you're in a sport that requires you to move levels from high and low and be able to uh, store, uh, I shouldn't say store, but build power through an eccentric movement and then be able to express it again. You're going to need adequate range of motion for that. And because all of these sports have an element of power output, you're going to need to focus on triple extension in some form or fashion, right? Uh, triple extension as one effort 
or multiple efforts. And that plays into developing the stretch shortening cycle as well. So that's going to be important uh, for doing multiple uh, bouts of triple extension over and over again to be efficient with that, to be able to produce as much as you can. Uh, injury considerations that you might have here. And this is for all of them. I tried to just think about everything that could happen. So sorry if I, if I missed anything here. Um, shoulder, pectoral um, injuries that could happen from throwing, swinging, or impact from an external force. If you're like in football, if you're blocking or something, you could have a shoulder or a pectoral injury um, from blocking, maybe from tackling if you get your arm extended a little bit too much. Um, back injuries happen from rotating, talking about overuse in a lot of these uh, sports. If you're in the wrong position with your core and you go to make an effort, uh, a rotational effort at max velocity or you know uh, full go you, you could have you could experience that from overuse or from being in a bad position also compression again with our contact sports you could experience compression of the spine and, and potentially have a, a disc herniation there um, knee injuries from being reactive and having to react to a sport uh, or a, an opponent, excuse me, uh, from landing. It could happen there. could happen from faulty mechanics resulting in poor body placement when you're going to make execute a move. So just the way that your center of gravity is in relation to uh, your lower body could could play into that right i mean i think surface field surface is also another thing to consider uh, to consider in these non-contact knee injuries as well concussion concussions it could be player to player or it could be non-contact or i mean i mean non-contact with an opponent contact with the ground or the surface that you're playing on those things could happen uh forearm elbow wrist those things typically happen from overuse uh, they could happen in some type of acute situation uh but they're typically from overuse in these sports lower limb uh achilles rupture from fatigue or the tendon not being prepared uh through your training uh shin splints from high impacts or multiple surface changes in your training um foot fractures stress fractures all those things can occur in the lower limbs and in the foot uh, last one I'm going to talk about or just mention is a hamstring could happen from overextension in your mechanics, uh, poor mechanics, um, or it could be your lacking strength or the muscular adaptations to handle the forces that you're trying to um, exhibit in the sport. Yeah. Um, some recommendations here. I'm going to list these recommendations. Then I'm going to kick it over to you, Claire, uh, so that, you know, you, you can shed some light on the nutrition side of it. And then I'll, I'll give some highlights for training and then some examples after the, after you give, um, your insight to us as well. So my recommendations would be to train for the demands of your sport, meaning the energy system that you have in your sport. Um, whether your sport is high force or high velocity, um, uh, trying to change both of those things in order to get, uh, that optimal point of power, uh, multi-directional or single effort, whichever one it is. If it's a multi-directional sport, obviously you need to train in those different directions. If it's a single effort like golf, um, then you should, you should really focus on training, uh, things that will affect that single effort. And then triple extension. I mentioned that as well. It's important. It's, it's very important to train that in these sports you want to recruit the max amount of muscle fibers that you can 
in order to be explosive, right? So I think contrast training would be a really good thing here as proficiency allows you to do so, but you need to build a base here as far as movement quality goes and strength uh, or overall strength goes before you do that. That could take a year or or more, right, to gain that, but you're still going to get benefits from actually getting stronger in training and then practicing your sport at a high level. Uh, progressive overload, it's good to go above and beyond sometimes, overreach a little bit, but be cautious about that. I definitely think that you should progressively overload and, and try to reach your limits in, uh, in the off season or as time allows you to do so. Um, hypertrophy, this could go for everyone, but mostly for our contact sports, right? So size matters here and your ability to produce force to withstand some of these other external forces that are going on around here. Um, Olympic weightlifting movements, you don't necessarily have to um, do these. And, and I wouldn't do these just, I wouldn't just throw these in because it looks cool or you've seen people do them or you want to, you want your kids to be doing them. It's not really what you want. You want your kids to get better. And there are many ways to approach that, right? So some substitutions that you can have for Olympic weightlifting that might be better suited for your situation and your athletes and also for your coaching ability for this movement. Uh, instead of doing jerk, you can do a landmine push press essentially, yeah. uh, which I think is a great translation to about any overhead, overhead sport, but also for blocking or um, initiating contact with someone in football mm-hmm. for the clean. Uh, for the clean, you could do uh, pulls instead if they're good. Uh, I would suggest really starting with deadlift because if you're going to do any lifting from the floor uh, for Olympic weightlifting variations or derivatives, you're going to need to be able to deadlift in a controlled manner so that you can set yourself up for that. But uh, honestly, overall, if you just get stronger and work on plyometrics, I think you're going to be in a good situation. And those plyometrics could be body weight only or in different times, you could use a band for assistance or use the band for resistance as well. So those are some, some of the things that uh, I would recommend focusing on for training these power sports. But Claire, what we got nutrition wise? <laughs> no, that's great. And I think um, a lot of what you mentioned, it's funny, like my brain keeps turning when you were mentioning all that coming from an endurance background and then kind of shifting a little bit more to like power type exercises. It makes sense that I was so bad at them in the beginning because I wasn't very strong. And like as an endurance athlete, we don't really focus on like triple extension or like range of motion and all of those places. So that was really helpful. And I think just coming from that background and understanding a little bit more of the power sports is helpful. Um, and then from a nutrition piece, um, from an energy system perspective, I think uh, you made a good point in mentioning that these athletes and, and coaches too really need to understand the energy system that is being utilized. So one, they can train it properly, but two, that's really important for the nutrition piece of it too, because I think you can get away maybe a little bit more um, with not necessarily being so um, honed in on that with some of the other types of sports because of just the interplay of those energy systems is a little bit more of a gray area, I guess. You're, you have more recruitment of those energy systems at different times. Whereas for these events that are 10 seconds long, the majority of your energy system is coming from one place, right? right. So. 
Um, so I did just want to touch on those a little bit more from a nutrition perspective. Um, because it affects nutrition so much. So, I I mean, there's evidence that even like a 30 second sprint, which would maybe be like a long sprint, I guess you could say, can reduce um, your phosphocreatine system by up to 75%. So that's, it's basically almost gone. (laughs) And, you know, unfortunately, and, and the problem with that is you maybe in practice, like once that phosphate is donated to ADP to make ATP, which um, is hit them with the science, Claire. I know. I'm. I really am. I'm trying. <laughs> I was like, maybe I should explain what that means. I know we've mentioned it before. What ATP means? So ATP. I'm just going to say, for uh, just simplicity's purpose, is energy. So to make that ATP to make energy, it's then going to take one to two minutes or a couple minutes to return um, to the cell and then donate another phosphate to that creatine. So if you're doing like 30 second sprints in practice and you only have, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute to recover, that's not enough, right? So even from like a coaching perspective, that's going to be important to know so that you know how long it's going to take your athletes to recover so that they can, you know, be intentional with those movements in practice. So that those creatine phosphate stores are going to be the limiting factor in energy production for those like really short high intensity duration events and then athletes that participate in those so um one or i guess two ways that you can kind of train that system is repeat sprint training so kind of training it to um to utilize that energy system and then for the recovery piece too, and then supplementation, supplementation with creatine, um, which I'm a big fan of for power sports and power athletes in general. Um, and then you mentioned anaerobic glycolysis. So obviously glucose is the other source of energy for these types of events. Um, typically as the time increases, we're going to be recruiting that anaerobic glycolysis a little bit more. So, let's say for a really short sprint. So a 10 second sprint, maybe we're only going to be relying on glucose for like 40 to 44% of your energy production. Whereas as that time increases and we move to like a 30 second sprint, it'll be closer to like 50, maybe in 55% of reliance on glucose. So, and then obviously as we get to, you know, longer duration, 20, 30 minutes, we're really relying on glucose um, for the majority of our energy production. So I think that's just good to know. Um, I never learned about energy systems until I was in college studying science. So I think if you're an athlete, especially do do some research um, on that, or we can even, I think that would be a good thing to talk about. I mean, we've talked about energy systems, but maybe even just go more in depth into like what they are and what they mean at some point, um, because I think that will give athletes a better understanding of why they're doing the training that they're doing for the sport that they're in um and why a lot of these like uh nutrition recommendations are are being made but we can talk about that so from a macronutrient perspective um things are going to look a i wouldn't say a lot different than what 
I recommended or what is recommended for like those uh, intermittent power athletes, but it is going to be very different from what is recommended from endurance athletes. And that would make sense because the intent of the sport is a lot different. Like you mentioned, right. Zach, there's a lot of kind of that like, you know, bursts of power. And then maybe we're, you know, either resting because there's a TV break, there's a timeout, we're in between plays, we're switching position groups, whatever's happening um, versus continuous movement in in some of these other sports. So like I mentioned in the energy systems, carbs are still important to make sure we have adequate glucose stores and we're maintaining that blood glucose supply. Um, but they're not as imperative in, in these types of sports. So we're not going to need as much um, because we also want to make sure that we're uh, keeping body composition in mind too, because we really want to make sure that we have enough room, I guess, in our caloric intake to have enough protein to build strength. So these sports are not going to really deplete glycogen stores over the course of, of one event, right? We're, we're talking about like maybe up to 30 second bursts, maybe a little bit more, um, but potentially completing or competing in like multi events through, throughout the course of a day could lead to depleted glycogen stores if we're not conscious of what we're doing nutritionally. So that would be more of like a track meet, um, gymnastics. Um, and then obviously if you're looking at a football game, play after play after play after play, if we're not replenishing those stores, then we could run into problems with glucose and glycogen. Um, well, you, you mentioned two things that kind of spurred uh, examples for me. Um, one being having enough rest time. Well, if you're playing for a football team and uh, or you're playing baseball, softball, right? You're on the field for a little bit and then you're off, right? For right. a little bit, right? So, I mean, you've got a little bit of time to really uh, recuperate and, and get your energy system to get back into uh, a place where it can provide you for you again. Uh, but another thing that you just mentioned on the other examples is if you've got uh, a big weekend tournament for softball or baseball, right? That's a lot of that stuff happening again and again. So you have to make sure that you're uh, fueling properly in between those. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm such a huge proponent of having food available in the dugout or on the sideline or whenever. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times it's, um, especially in younger athletes, because we're, they're just not taught this or they don't know. It's like you're eating before, we're maybe eating during halftime, maybe not, depends if we have time, and then we're eating after. When that like in between and that those intermittent times are super important because, again, you're not depleting your glycogen, but we're still not at 100%. So if you're playing for nine innings in a baseball game, the carbohydrate snack that you ate at the beginning of the game or 30 minutes before the game is not going to last you till the end of the game. Right. right. So to, I, I think those opportunities to fuel are so important that a lot of athletes just overlook or don't take like the amount of times that when I was working in collegiate sports that kids just didn't eat things at halftime, it blew my mind. I was like, I understand you're not hungry and it's, this is not the first thing on your mind and that you want to do, but, or if they were losing, it was like, no, I don't want to eat. I don't want to do this. And I was yeah. like, this is just going to make it worse. Just eat a Rice Krispie Treat, <laughs> like eat anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's a good point of like when you're thinking of those recovery times, that nutrition piece to make sure that you're 
even in those short bursts and that short duration of recovery time, you're giving yourself the most opportunity to go back on the field or back on the court or wherever you're going to have as much power and energy to produce power and strength and whatever you need to as possible. Yeah. What were your, um, before I move on, did your experience in football, what, what was that like for you at like halftime or being able to like fuel during games? Honestly, I don't think in high school that we had any food at halftime. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I just remember like, obviously we had Gatorade and water. Um, maybe it was Powerade. I can't remember what we had <laughs> in high school. Um, but yeah, we just had those on the sideline during games. Right. So you would yeah. do it every once in a while. But I remember in college, man, we got snacks, like mm-hmm. we got snacks, like after warmups. Right. So like we, we had our pregame meal, we went to the field, uh, we did our little walk around on the field then we got ready. Then we went out to do our warm up for the game, went back into the locker room, had some snacks there for that went out we played we had i think we only had gatorade and stuff on the sideline at that point but then halftime snacks available in there went back out second half um and then you know food almost immediately once once the game was over too so yeah yeah, that's that's kind of what it was like yeah and i think that's great and and i when i was in working in football, we, it was a little further. We were on the sidelines and we could provide things um, if they were necessary. But it's so interesting, like just that difference between the co- college and high school. And I would yeah. argue that high schoolers, not that they need it more, but they need it just as much. So we need to be, you know, not just limiting that to if there's a dietitian on staff or if there's somebody on staff that can provide that we need to be implementing that in the high school setting too even if it's just kids are bringing their own snacks and putting them on the sideline and maybe it's like labeled or it's on their seat on the bench um whatever it might be or in the locker room because it's it makes a huge difference so yeah 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 um so that's kind of more of like carbohydrates from a timing perspective um, around training Um, from a daily perspective again when we were talking about endurance athletes carbohydrate recommendations were anywhere from like 7 to 12 grams per kilograms per day Um, there's really no evidence to show that power athletes need more than like 5 to 7 grams per kilogram a day and I've even seen some research studies that would put put it around like 4 grams per kilogram per day um wow. for younger athletes like again these high school athletes i would keep it somewhere between five and seven because again they're still growing they're maturing um maybe depending on the seasonality so you know um maybe if we're in off season we can bump that up a little bit um pre-season keep it up in that higher range in season maybe it's a little bit more moderate and then when they're off or like that postseason time maybe we can bump it down a little bit because their energy needs aren't as high so we can look at you you know we can look at carbohydrate um, periodization from that perspective too and it doesn't necessarily have to be you can only eat six grams per kilogram per day all season long um whoa whoa what would you recommend for someone who's playing like in high school, multiple sports going from in season to in season, potentially yeah. to in season? Yeah, I would just maybe then that would be a good time to just keep it high. Um, it also yeah. would depend on like what sports they're playing. So if they're 
going from power sport to power sport to power sport to power sport, then you could probably keep it at that like seven. If they're going from football to, I don't know, swimming, we need to be a little bit uh, swimming side. Yeah. Especially if they're a swimmer. And again, I think we talked about this with the intermittent um, power sports. Obviously if you're a sprinter, you're going to race those, you know, really short, races maybe 50 meter freestyle is going to take you like 20 seconds um so that's you know a short race uh however when you're training you don't just swim a 50 free and then you're done right so that's going to be a lot longer and more demanding so that's more of where we get into that continuous energy expenditure so i would bump it up from somewhere between like eight to ten maybe if they're Mm -hmm. changing to one of those more intermittent power or endurance sports gotcha yeah that's a good question because a lot of high school athletes do participate in multiple sports. Um, although I would, I would guess that most of the time it's similar sports. Like if you're playing football, you're probably involved, like you said, in track and you're probably either a sprinter or doing field events. Um, whereas like me, I did swimming and cross country. So like, right. you know, I did a lot of more of that endurance stuff. So, um, but that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had some athletes that have played football and then played lacrosse. And then I know some people have done so- uh, soccer and then gone into softball. Yeah. So those are some those are some different ones. Pretty different. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I part of me wishes I had um, gone into more of like the power intermittent power sports as a kid, but I don't know that I would have been very good at them considering how hard it was for me to transition from endurance sports to just like weightlifting, <laughs> like lifting like a right. regular human being. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so that's the like general daily recommendations. And then I, there is like some potential evidence to show that power athletes um, could or maybe should primarily focus on carbohydrate timing after workouts versus before workouts to like enhance that recovery piece, Mm -hmm. um, especially if it's on uh, like a competition day where there are multiple events or like in baseball, softball, maybe it's a tournament day where they're playing multiple games. Um, There's still some debate as to whether you know, that's definitive or not of, you know, you should primarily focus on that. Um, But I would argue that in these athletes, the after for the recovery is a bit more important than having, you know, a ton of carbohydrates before, because again, you're utilizing that creatine, phosphocreatine system in conjunction with the um, glycolysis, but there are opportunities to replenish that fuel throughout practice and games and stuff. Whereas with the, with other sports that, that might not be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, protein. So generally speaking, again, power athletes, protein needs are not necessarily crazily different from intermittent power sports. Um I, from what I found, the general recommendations were about 1.2 to 2.0 grams per kilogram per day. I personally would probably bump that up to like 1.5 to 2.2, which I think is what we had talked about the last right. time, um, would be adequate. Again, if we're trying to build strength, we want that to be on the upper end. If we're just trying to maintain strength, maybe we're in season, we could probably stick to that lower end and have some more calories come from carbs. Um 
Interestingly, I did see one study, some support for um, up to 1.8 to 2.7 grams per kilogram per day of protein, <laughs> which is a lot of protein. Like that's above um, for those right. for those of us that don't work in kilograms, which is probably the majority of people listening. Um, that's over one gram per pound per day if we're lo- past that 2.2 grams mm-hmm. per point um but that was primarily in a calorically restricted state so i would argue that the majority of these athletes that we work with or athletes that are involved in these power sports probably shouldn't be that high and shouldn't be necessarily be in a calorically restricted state the only time that i would maybe recommend that or see that as a potential option is in like an olympic weightlifter who needs to cut weight or whatever, maybe a, maybe more in a bodybuilding situation. But for these more performance-based athletes, um, especially younger athletes, we shouldn't be in a calorically restricted state to begin with. So we, right. we really don't need to, <laughs> need to be that excessive with protein intake. Um, the other thing with protein, and um, we don't necessarily talk about it a ton with these other sports, but this is where it Timing can be really important from a hypertrophy and a strength power-based perspective is the timing and the dosing after exercise. So we do kind of recommend, obviously, that we focus on increasing or, or incorporating some amount of protein after exercise in other sports just to maintain muscle mass and start that recovery process. Um, but these power athletes should really make an effort to be incorporating this um, protein timing again because we're not really focusing so much on the carbohydrate timing pre and post um, workout so the recommendation is 0.3 again grams per kilogram uh, of protein after exercise and then every three to five hours after that so again we're kind of being a little bit more uh, weight specific with what that amount looks like Um, so for like like an 130 pound person that's like 17 to 18 grams so it's not that much it's not not a ton honestly there's research to show that if we're exceeding about like 40 grams um there's not much benefit past that post-workout um but again it's going to depend on your body weight so if you're 130 pounds versus 250 your protein needs are going to look a lot different per serving because one probably has a lot more muscle mass than the other um But essentially, that's just going to give these athletes a a larger advantage to really maximize some of these metabolic adaptations that are happening in training. Um, So that's protein. Not a whole lot on fat. Um, I would say just athletes just need to focus on eating an adequate amount of fat. So again, somewhere between like 25 to 35% of calories, um, making sure we're getting a variety of types of fat and and really just trying to focus on unsaturated fat intake and limiting saturated fat in, intake, which is not different from any other athlete recommendation. Um, mm-hmm. But we just need to make sure we're still eating fat to meet those high energy demands and maintain hormonal and cardiometabolic health. Um, hydration. So just with any other sport, Hydration is important for power sports too, depending on the environment. So I, I bring up football again um, because they're in heavy equipment. Um, A lot of times their practices are 
maybe other sports too, are maybe in the afternoon. So they're out in the environment. Typically in high school, you don't have indoor practice facilities. So you're going to be outside versus maybe in the collegiate or club setting. Maybe you do have access to like an indoor air conditioned training facility, which would be great for a hydration perspective. Um, But there, there has been shown, it, it has been shown in American, this was in college football players, um, especially in hot human environments, they're already coming to practice dehydrated. So if, um, if we're practicing in those, in that heavy equipment outside in hot human environment, it can already be really challenging to rehydrate after that. But the problem with that is then we're showing up to practice the next day or later that day, whatever, uh, already dehydrated. And so I know we've talked about this before, but in, in a review of research and dehydration, um, on football athletes, uh, Judelson and colleagues showed that a dehydration of three to 4% causes a reduction in muscle strength by about 2%, muscle power by about 3%, and high intensity endurance at about 10%. So that's oh. no way, no, no good. So, and, and three to 4% is on the larger end of, of dehydration, but even one to 2%, one to 2%, there are detriments in training. Like we can already see a mm-hmm. decline in strength and power and endurance, um, cognitive function, all of those things. So in these right. particular power sports, all of those things are necessary to complete, you know, the job that they need to complete um, in their sport. So hydration is a really important factor for these athletes as well. Um, just like with any other sport, again, I would say, make sure that you're rehydrating after rehydrating during even, and, you know, with, in conjunction with just daily hydration needs, um, and making sure that we're also combining that with some sort of electrolyte drink as well. Right. Um, last thing, supplement. So I don't typically... I don't think I've really talked about supplements um, in any of the other two. Maybe we mentioned it briefly, but I think power sports, as long as we're focusing on the basic nutrition needs first and we're meeting energy needs, we're meeting macronutrient and micronutrient needs, I think supplementation can be really beneficial for these athletes because just because of the energy systems that are used and just because of the short timing, the short amount of time that they have to maximally uh put out whatever effort it is of whether they're in baseball track whatever supplements can be really helpful in these situations um the primary one that i would recommend or that can be used with that phosphocreatine system is creatine like i mentioned before so i i would argue that the majority of power-based athletes could benefit from taking creatine um again it's you can take it whenever throughout the day, five grams. There is um, the potential you could do a loading phase, but if you're going to take it long-term anyway, if there's not something that you like need to uh, be like um, need to be saturating those stores for, you can just take five grams a day and, and you'll be fine. So if you, let's say you have, I don't know, a testing day in the weight room in, three weeks and you're like, oh, I really want to like see if this creatine will help. You can maybe do the loading phase. So that's a higher dose um, for X amount of time. And then you bump it down to that five grams a day. So that would maybe be a good, 
uh, situation or good scenario to where you are using that loading phase. Um, but for the most part, you don't really need to do that. Um, and then there are also supplements that can be used to um, kind of enhance, I guess, that lactic acid buffering capacity in these sports. Um, so that would be sodium bicarbonate and beta alanine. So those things can be helpful for that. Um, but if you're going to take any, I would say creatine. And then a few honorable mentions would be caffeine. So again, <laughs> um, I think I mentioned this in the endurance. Caffeine can be used for that too, but just making sure we're timing it right. So we don't need to be drinking caffeine like right before bed. Um, it's not like creatine. You can't just take it whenever you want. You know, we need to time caffeine to where we're taking it one to three hours before whatever um, event we're engaging in. Again, whether that be practice, whether that be a game, whether that be um, a time trial or some some sort of um, testing day, we want to make sure the timing of that is right. And then if necessary, if we need to use protein powders or even like a leucine supplement to, to kind of help us reach that protein goal, because in some athletes, it might be pretty high, like I mentioned, like that two point to range, um, that can be helpful just to bridge any of those gaps. Um, but again, uh, no. <laughs> what? Now tell us why you mentioned leucine specifically. Yeah. So leucine is an essential amino acid. It's one of the branch chain amino acids. Um, but leucine is the most important amino acid for muscle hypertrophy and muscle protein synthesis. So we need to, I would say the, the majority of protein powders and protein rich Animal sources have adequate leucine to stimulate that process. But for example, if you are plant-based or if you are consuming uh, incomplete sources of protein, or maybe you just have a protein powder that is not good and you need a different one, you might need to supplement with leucine because it doesn't have enough. Um, so if that's the case, then supplementing with, with leucine as an individual amino acid can be beneficial. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say because it's a branch chain amino acid that you need to um, supplement with BCAAs or even EAAs, essential amino acids. Um, if you're going to choose one because your other protein sources are not all complete or whatever, leucine would be the, the best bet for that, the best route to take in that sense. Awesome. Thanks, Claire. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, I forgot. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm going to share, you gave us a lot of research um, insights, which was very helpful. And uh, I think just to kind of conceptualize like what you need to focus on in your diet as a power athlete, it's just great. I mean, even if those numbers are kind of like uh, weird for you, you can, you know, rewind it and get the actual numbers <laughs> and write yeah. them down. But, but just to understand that, it's going to fluctuate if you're only playing this one power sport and you have an in-season, uh, pre-season, off-season, that, that carbohydrate number is going to fluctuate and that it's different from others. That protein number is going to fluctuate and be a little bit higher as you prepare for your sport. And then just to get the feedback on the supplementation, that's, that's great information, I think, for not just high school athletes to have, but like any athletes who might be in college or participating somewhere and haven't had that information before. That's good stuff. So I'm glad you shared that with us. Absolutely. I remember what I was going to say. Um, All right. You're taking a supplement. Make sure it is third-party tested. That's Boom. what I'm 
<laughs> That's right. Every time, make sure it's third party tested. Um, so I only have a couple of insights as far as literature goes. So I'm going to share them. Uh, first one's for volleyball. So this was a study of how strength conditioning measures transfer into in-game performance metrics or stats for volleyball. So this is broken down into position-specific stuff here. Okay, so if you're a defensive specialist or a libero, typically your back squat and your total strength to body weight ratio is going to help you or showed in a retrospective study that those factors played into their success on the court. Mm -hmm. For a setter, it's your um, power clean. Or, I mean, for me, I would substitute high pull just because I, I think I've mentioned the technicality of it before and just a risk reward or the benefit type of thing. Um, so power clean, change of direction and your broad jump as a setter. Those things are helpful and mm -hmm. they need to be at a high level. Outside hitter or pin hitters, sometimes they call them vertical jump and total strength to body weight ratio. And then the one that just blows my mind here is the middles. And it's broad jump. It's broad jump. If, if you, yeah, if you're doing the broad jump, you know, then that, that translates to your on-court performance or and being enhanced. So, um, let me give you the source of that real quick, just so people can have that out there. The title of the article was Evaluation of Strength Conditioning Measures with Game Success in Division One Collegiate Volleyball, a retrospective study it was done by Jennifer Bunn et al. Uh, it's a study from 2020. So that's interesting. Okay. All of those to me, like thinking about the position and their job, and then even maybe what they're like the typical kind of like body type. Um, those make sense. Except the last one is interesting. Not that it doesn't make sense, but it just wasn't what I was expecting. I know, I know, but yeah, it, it does kind of make sense. Um, I would, I also would think that the defensive specialist was going to be high on the change of direction ability as well yeah but, yeah but that to be that being said like sometimes you just have to get your you know your hands underneath the ball and like get a dig and mm -hmm. then it's the setter's job to go into get into position to make a set you know for the opportunity to have that point so i guess right. it makes sense for setters as well yeah. um my next one, the last one here, is uh, for baseball and softball. Okay, this is this study was actually done by a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Dr. Charles Allen. He is at Florida Southern College, and um, I think I think I'm actually one of the investigators of the study. <laughs> but but basically, it's around a concept called concurrent activation potentiation, mm -hmm. and so uh, this is done with. Uh, hitting with um, bat swing uh, velocity. So basically, when you wear a mouthpiece while you're uh, hitting, there is some evidence to support that an increase in bat swing will happen while you're biting down on the mouthpiece and swinging. And that increase in bat swing velocity could positively affect your exit velocity when making contact with the ball. So obviously there's a component of skill involved that needs to be accounted for. So you need to have the skill to hit, make contact with the ball. But if you're biting down, hmm. yeah. So the, the uh, neurological response to actually contract in health 
can actually aid in producing force otherwise. There are other studies out there that show positive effect for vertical jump performance as well. So it, it would kind of make sense. So if you're yeah. a baseball, softball player, if you want to increase your potential when hitting the ball, maybe maybe you do it in training just in the cages or maybe you do it in a game to get a mouthpiece. <laughs> Interesting. I've seen like anec- there's no studies about this in CrossFit athletes, but I've seen anecdotally or heard anecdotally of some CrossFit athletes using mouthpieces during like max lifts and stuff. And they're, I don't know that they say that it like yeah. changes anything crazily, but I have heard anecdotally that they say it feels easier. Their perception of difficulty is a little bit easier when they have that, um, that output or that contraction of biting down on the mouthpiece. Right. So uh, another study done by my friend, uh, Dr. Charles Allen, I'll read the title of it here. The effects of self-adapted jaw repositioning mouthpiece and jaw clenching on muscle activity during vertical jump and ISO clean pull performance. It's pretty much the same thing. It was like, Uh, The conclusion is these findings support jaw clenching as a viable technique to elicit concurrent activation potentiation of prime mover muscle activity during dynamic but not isometric physical activity, right? So if you're going into those types of uh, dynamic movements, right, this can help you. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So um, let me just go into some of my examples here for actual training nothing like i'm not going to give any sets of reps or anything like that i'm just going to kind of tell you uh, exercises that i would focus on areas that i think are important when training these athletes so i'm going to do uh two different like styles here so i'm going to go baseball softball and golf first and this is going to really maybe shock people that i'm including golf in this but i think definitely it, it should be considered because these are rotational single effort most of the time sports like at the play or at the plate right so when you're scoring points right it matters in that one moment Mm -hmm. so obviously you want to develop lower body strength things that i would say is um back squat front squat um bulgarian split squat i think is great to do unilateral strength also if you do that you can take some load off of the spine uh, because you can't lift as much. So that might be something that you need to consider as well. Um, I would say for youth athletes, unless you're going to get into Olympic weightlifting derivatives or something, probably trap bar deadlift is the, uh, deadlift variation that you could stick with here. It's fairly safe. Um, the, the vector is probably just a little bit different based on your positioning, but still a great movement to, uh, elicit a lot of force production from uh from nothing right um and then posterior chain stuff like um rdl single leg rdl some nordic hamstring as well uh just to make sure you're taking care of your posterior chain um for lower body power i would say broad jump vertical jump lateral bounds and a rotational bound which is essentially like a broad jump while you're turning in the air 90 degrees uh maybe we can put a video out for that but anyways um for rhythm purposes i would say the plate rotational series which we have up on our youtube page uh and i believe it's a youtube short for us as well it might even be on our tiktok but uh 
Yeah, so I, I think that that's really good for rhythm. Um, it's also good for backside mechanics as well, which I'm going to talk about later when we get to med ball stuff. Uh, for upper body strength, any barbell, dumbbell, landmine pressing, I think is great. Any body weight, dumbbell, or band, maybe cable pulling, I think is great. And anytime you can incorporate single arm movements into this upper body uh, for these sports in particular, it's going to be beneficial for you. Uh, scapular stability and retraction is going to be important for these sports. I think uh, probably mainly for baseball and softball, the rotator cuff, external rotator strength is going to be very important. Uh, for both T-spine mobility, uh, important, and also ankle mobility for both because, again, we are producing force through the ground. We need to be uh, able to produce force through the ankle with dorsiflexion. So I, I also, I, I don't quote me on like where the source is, because I don't know like what the article is, but I believe there's evidence out there that the ability to dorsiflex uh, better or like people who can dors dorsiflex more uh, during these loading movements produce more force. Um, don't quote me on that. I just, okay. I think I, I, I can just remember that being a thing that I've talked about with colleagues before. Yeah. Um, rotational core. Uh, I would I would mostly focus on that in your off season because as you get into season, those rotational elements in your actual sport are going to take precedence there. So you should back off of any rotational core movements as you get further into season. And when you're in season, I think you should focus more on anti-rotational movements, maybe anti-rotation, maybe anti-lateral flexion as well when you're doing core. Right. Uh, med ball throws. Uh, so now we're on this, right? I I really believe in the WEC method, which is doing non-dominant side med ball throws as well, focusing on non-dominant side, uh, just to elevate your base of neurological capabilities, right? So we're just, we've got this baseline level of where we can, obviously one side is better than the other, our dominant side higher, non-dominant side, and then raising that base so that our dominant side can be, come a little bit better just because of that neurological transfer of us having to, um, specifically fire on a different side um i would adjust the reps of dominant in season and um, what i mean by that is if we're still doing still working on rotational power as we get into preseason, right starting to cut down on that dominant side rotational efforts that we have uh in training outside of the sport i would cut it to somewhere about like two reps on dominant side, five reps on non-dominant side. And you can play with that number, but I think that your non-dominant side should be a little bit higher at that point as you're in that preseason area. Uh, sprinting. I think you should, I think you should sprint, right? Um, probably more so for baseball and softball, but these moments of power getting out of the box, like you need to be able to accelerate, right? And then like rounding bases. So I think you should focus on linear sprinting and curvilinear sprinting. I think it'd be very beneficial for you. Uh, infielders, maybe add in some shuffle or crossover to sprint type of movements. Uh, that could be beneficial for base running and for the actual position itself. Outfielders, we have a movement series in our uh, exercise library on our YouTube and also in our connect app. I think that that would be beneficial for outfielders to do this movement series and even maybe add in a sprint back to where you started um, at the end of it. I think that, that could really play into uh, uh, specificity for game-like movements. Um, and for pitchers, I would focus mostly on short shuttles or stride repeats, something like that to uh, 
be in a similar energy system that uh, you might need for the game and that might elicit some type of um, recovery response. So you're able to do repeated bouts over and over as your pitch count gets higher and higher. So it can stimulate that type of metabolic response in your body. For golf, as far as it goes for like actual movement, uh, maybe even a running type of thing, um, I would say sh short strides uh, with a decent amount of recovery. Uh, that's going to help your aerobic base develop a little bit more. I would do some lateral shuffles just because of the uh, directionality of it and pushing through the ground because there is a loading phase to one side. There's a hip shift and then a hip shift again as you go swing onto the ball. Um, and then maybe just a movement series with our, our shuffle version of that. I think could be beneficial for uh, just you getting your body moving, get your hips going. Maybe it's a part of your dynamic warm up towards the end. Um, it might just uh, help you keep this, uh, help you fight off this uh, perception that golfers aren't athletic type of thing, yeah. right? So just <laughs> just keep you in that. Um, the last one I'm going to mention here uh, is football. So uh, I think the lower body strength components are, are very similar as far as the exercises I would uh, put out there for it. I would probably say, go ahead and teach the deadlift. Um, if your coach is comfortable with it, or you've got someone who can work with you to help you perfect that movement, because it can be very beneficial for you moving forward, especially as you get older into your years and you continue to train and play football. Um, lower body power, I would do um, very similar, probably instead of rotational bound, I would do more of a 45 degree bound or just traditional bounding, more single leg bouts though, uh, maybe single leg bounding or single leg response type of pogos uh, projecting forward. Uh, upper body strength, same things, barbell, dumbbell, landmine, uh, anything that could be specific to um, blocking or initiating contact would be great as well as you get into different parts of the year. Same things with single arm efforts of pulling and pressing would be great. Overall, upper body strength is definitely beneficial. You're going to need that hypertrophy for the sport. Um, acceleration, I'd go 5 to 20 yards. I'd work on that. Probably as you get into the 15 to 20 yard range, you want to use utilize something like buildups or some people call them flying sprints. Um, those things are going to be beneficial for you. Uh, so not only pure acceleration from a dead start, a dead start or dead stop, however you want to say it, but also transitional acceleration, actually moving and then accelerating. Cause many times that happens in the game. You're go, you're, you're just kind of moving and reading your keys and then all of a sudden you're, you're taking off at that point. Right. Um, speed mechanics, I think are going to be great to work on because you're going to need to be efficient when you're actually running. Um, and then I would say any speed work that you do from 20 to 40 yards, is going to be beneficial. You should definitely hit the 40 yard mark though in your training because more, more than likely, you will test the 40 yard sprint. So you need to be adapted to that in general or in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, change direction, very important for you to be efficient, know how to change direction, know how to change direction in multiple directions, not just side to side, front to back. You need to be able to make, you know, uh, 180 turns, 235 degree turns. You need to be able to make all sorts of turns. Um, and changes. Um, but then also agility, you need to react to a stimulus, whether that's a partner drill or your coaches, uh, you're coming up to a coach and he's pointing out or saying something and you're having to react to that direction or away from that direction. So those types of things are great, uh, for conditioning tests, 
do the tribe test. If you don't know what the tribe test is, go look it up. I think this is one of the best conditioning specific tests for football, right? Like not doing one tens, not doing any of this other stuff, right? Like I think if you're going to test fitness capabilities for the sport of football, do the tribe test, go look it up. Um, I also think lateral shuffle, um, any shuffle sprint combos and short shuttles, those are going to be important in training just to really develop that, uh, anaerobic capacity as you keep going. Um, it could be beneficial for your testing of the tribe test. Um, I think the last thing I have here is, uh, I like sled pushes for linemen and for like big skills, like tight ends and linebackers. I really like sled pushing, um, yeah, I like sled pulls for skill positions, like uh, wide wide receiver and cornerbacks, right? Um, so th- those are kind of my examples of what I would consider and like what I would focus on if I were training for those sports in particular. Yeah. So you said you weren't giving sets and reps, but you pretty much gave everything else away. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, of but great I, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no sets of reps, no days, uh, no specific like layout, none of that stuff. But yeah, th- those are things that I would focus on for those sports. But um, one of my favorite segments here, we are jumping in closing segment here. We are back to nutritional clarity, where Claire gives us her opinion on statements um, that are involving nutrition, right? And, and maybe just diet overall. So Love this right here. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, first one, cucumbers and water provide electrolytes at levels similar to sports drinks. Um, I'm going to have to go with no. Uh, I do believe cucumbers have potassium in them, I want to say. Uh, but I don't think just putting them in water would leach enough <laughs> potassium into the water to provide the same amount you'd probably have to also eat the cucumber so you could put them in water and drink the water but you probably have to eat them too um and you're only getting potassium so i would argue that that's one not enough but from an electrolyte perspective and two is probably not enough of just that one electrolyte yeah uh, what's it called when you press down on is that called muddling yeah. You press down on stuff. What if you did that? Does that does that give you a little bit more? Um, I don't know. A little That's bit good. more of that potassium, right? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't know. I would say you still might need to eat them. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next one. Um, caffeine can hinder vitamin absorption. Okay, so there is some truth to that one. Um, although I've seen it primarily in, uh, not primarily, but there is something in coffee, um, which obviously has caffeine in it, um, that are phenolic compounds. So it's in other things too, like um, I think dark chocolate and some other uh, foods and, and beverages that contain caffeine that interfere with iron absorption because those compounds bind to non-heme iron. So that could be one instance. And then I want to say that caffeine can, I don't think it's in small doses. I think it would have to be in larger doses, but large doses of caffeine can hinder the expression of vitamin D receptors. Um, So I believe that's why a lot of times with low bone density or bone 
um, injuries. Caffeine consumption is uh, nutritionally one way we can kind of help um, from a healing perspective or a prevention perspective is to limit caffeine um, consumption. Those are the two that I could think of off the top of my head um, that would hinder vitamin and um, mineral absorption. There may be more though, but those are the top two that I think are pretty common. Nice. Uh, Last one, food dyes in sports drinks and juice can be harmful to children. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say again, this, that kind of question goes with the, the dose makes the poison type, um, answer of they can be probably depends on how much, how frequently, you know, how often they're consuming those things. Um, and it's probably, I would say it's probably, uh, more than just children. It would, it could affect adults too, depending on how much you're drinking and, and for what purpose. Um, I have seen a lot of stuff on social media lately with like red 40. And I think you mentioned earlier that when you were a kid, it was a lot of like red five or whatever mm-hmm. these guys. Um, I don't think there, well, no, there haven't really been a lot of human studies. There have been animal studies. Um, but again, it, it depends on the dose and how frequently if you drink those types of things once a year, you're going to be fine. Like it's not really going to cause that much cause an issue um if you drink them every day in large quantities because it could it be an issue yeah maybe um but i think one of the larger issues surrounding like these sports drinks and juices is that i think they're just over consumed which we were talking about earlier um Mm -hmm. you can look at or i think we should look at uh these electrolyte electrolyte drinks specifically as kind of like a supplement and they're you know supplemental to the diet um they're high in sugar they're high in electrolytes so if you're getting enough of those things through your diet you don't need to be pounding gatorades all day right they're they were made for a specific population they were made for athletes they were made for athletes cramping in the summertime during sport so um if you're an athlete and you're utilizing that supplement to um replenish glycogen stores and electrolyte stores to prevent cramping then that's great um i think that that has a purpose and that is one of the purposes of it but if we're just like in school drinking gatorade we don't really need to be doing that unless it's like for a pre-practice or a pre-exercise um type drink so i think they are over consumed same thing with fruit juice and i'm <laughs> I told you I was guilty of this as a child. I didn't drink a lot of water. I drank fruit juice. Um, and so shame on me, but uh, (laughs) we don't need to be pounding fruit juice all the time. Is it okay? You know, with a meal or every once in a while? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great way to get in some, um, vitamins and minerals from fruits. Maybe if we don't have either access to fresh fruit or we ran out of fruit or canned fruit or whatever, fruit juice can be a great alternative, but there's definitely a time and a place for for those things. And then that includes the dyes in those things as well. Wow. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. That's awesome. Thank you, Claire, for providing that nutritional clarity for us. Anytime I need information on uh, nutrition, I go with I go. 100%. (laughs) So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, We hope you have a great day or a great night whatever time it is for you wherever you're listening thank you for uh, allowing us to be part of your day and we will catch you on the next one